Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn to uh, the book of Ruth. We're going to be uh, reading. We've been, we're, we're looking at uh, in the Advent in our uh, Glad Tidings of Great Joy series that we're in uh, at the various what might be called the Mothers of Jesus. Uh, we call them, traditionally, his, history marks them as the Mothers of Jesus because they are in the, in the genealogy that Jesus gives, that, G, that Matthew gives in the first chapter. He gives uh, the genealogy of Jesus as he, as he makes his way back to uh, Abraham, as he finds his way back to, the, to his first father, Abraham, and then follows his lineage all the way up until Mary. And in there, uh, surprisingly, dramatically, there are five women's names mentioned amongst the dozens of men, and that would have been radically unusual in its day and age, because in, in the day in which uh, Matthew would have been writing uh, his genealogy and, and sort of uh, mentioning it, it would, have been, uh, it would have been unheard of to mention a woman's name. They, <laughs> Oddly, oddly, in a patriarchal in a patriarchal society, as misogynist as it was, it was it was all the women who were doing the birthing aren't mentioned at all. It's all the men who were birthed, and the reason that genealogies were given, the reason that genealogies were were utilized, one of the predominant reasons they were, and the re, you know, uh, uh, and Matthew's following suit here uh, in in this capacity um, is as a as a sort of resume. Uh, a, a genealogy was meant to, to sort of suggest the, um, the importance of the individual whose genealogy was being listed as saying this person is vital, this person at the end of the genealogy, the one, the last name that's mentioned, that's, that's you know, so I go back and I list all of my genealogy. The person at the, at the bottom of it is important because of all the important names along the way. And so listen to this person because of all of their things. Uh, the problem with Jesus' genealogy <laughs> is it's not much of a resume by those standards. It's not much of a resume to say, listen to this person at the bottom, Jesus, because of all the important people that have followed before him. Basically, what, G- what, what G- Jesus' genealogy is, is to say, um, is almost the exact opposite, is to say, look at all, uh, look at all the ne'er-do-wells that brought about this man. As if to say, this man, Jesus, is willing to be numbered among the ne'er-do-wells. Of which, one remarkable woman named Ruth. Why? Why is her story so valuable? We'll find out. Let's look at it. Ruth 1. Start at verse eight and read down a couple of paragraphs, and then we'll jump into verse. Uh, then we'll jump into chapter four. Read the beginning of the story and the end of the story a little bit, just to get a sense of, of the whole experience. Starting at verse eight, verse chapter one. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your to your dead and to me." May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and she said, and she, and said to her, 
We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old and have become, and have, and, uh, to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has been against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. Chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and became his wife. Then, she went to, then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to God, who this day has not left you without kins, a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would show us yourself today. Lord, you are our only hope. You are, you are all that we have. And Father, I pray that as we trust in you in that, it would lead us to, us to a sense of confidence in our world and in the life that you've provided for us. Lord, give us, give us a sense of yourself and your forgiveness and show us, captivate us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, there's, a, there's a story told about a doctor who was... Who was um, who was working with a patient removing his gallbladder. I've had my gallbladder removed suddenly, dramatically. Um, and I had the same question that this, that this patient had of his doctor. Well, how, could doc, how can you remove that? He says, well, you don't really need it. Gallbladder, you don't, I mean, you don't really need it. And he says, the patient says, well, if I don't really need it, then why God give it to me? Don't I, you know, are you saying that God was wrong? He says, no. And the doctor said, no, God was wrong. He says, well, then why did he give me a gallbladder that I don't need and that now I have to get removed if I don't need it and God isn't wrong? He says, well, he gave it to you so that I could remove it and put my kids through college. <laughs> there's, a sense, there's a sense that it's humorous. I'm not sure if that story's true or not. I, you know, I've heard it, you know, even when I was having my own gallbladder removed last year. Was it last year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. Um, 
But it reminds me humorously, it should remind us humorously, and part of, part of the reason I tell you that story is that what seems like affliction to me and in me may not be for me, but may be for someone else. That God is, that you can never really guess what God's doing with the darkness and with the affliction and with the hardship that God's doing in your world. You can never, we can never really get, get behind it. And that sometimes affliction to me means benefit to others. It's the story of Ruth. And in this story, we don't, we don't have time to read all four chapters, but I'd commend them to you. It's a beautiful love story. So beautiful. I, you know, it, it, it does shock me that there isn't more theatrical movies and plays and songs written currently about Ruth. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, dramatic story uh, of, of kismet, really. Isn't that, is that a term we use? Of, I think, that the, I think we, the other word is it's a meat, cute, cute meat between Ruth and her, and her Boaz, her beau, as it were. Um, in this, we see, in the progress of the story, we see three things that I want to draw our attention to. We, the story highlights three elements that I, want us to, that I want us to linger on. Number one, an unforeseen bitterness. Number two, an unexpected love story. Number three, an unimagined rescue. Naomi, who is, the, who is the, as it were, in many ways, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll spend a minute on this, Naomi, the book's title is Ruth, and the story does revolve a lot around her life, but the story really is Naomi's story. The story starts with Naomi and her husband. Uh, the story starts with them, and as you saw at the end, the story sort of comes back to her at the end. The story is peppered with Naomi the whole time. Naomi is the, is the mother, is the mother-in-law, and she and her husband were living in Israel until a famine breaks out. A cultural, um, natu natural, uh, 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 an affliction of nature breaks out, something that is beyond the control of the people in the land in which they lived, not unlike the kind of natural outbreak of things that are beyond our control currently. Different ends of the spectrum, one biological, one agricultural, uh, but, uh, not sure how the famine occurred, but there's a famine. There's, the land is not producing. There is not enough food to go about. In an agrarian society, they, ha they are at the mercy of the, of the harvest. They are at the mercy of the elements. They are the mercy, as we all are in some capacity. Um, and so there's a famine that breaks out, and she and her husband go live in another, in another country where there's no famine, where there's greater opportunity, where they, where the, which was a natural process of things, a natural way to address it. And so she and her husband go, and while they're there, they, you know, they, they, they have sons, they have two sons, and after they've had two sons, her, her husband dies. Now she's a widow with two sons. Fortunately, her two sons married. One married Ruth, and one married Orpah, Moabite women, women from the country in which they lived. And they lived and survived and did the best they could for 10 years, and then 
tragedy upon tragedy. Famine leads to the death of her husband, which leads to having to marry women of, a, of an ethnically diverse culture. And uh, part, of, part, of the, part of the struggle in that is that there was, there was unimaginable hatred between Israelites, racial hatred between Israelites and Moabites in the day and age. There was unimaginable discord, hatred, unease, and, 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 and conflict between Moabites and Israelites. So her sons are married into this multiracial, multiethnic culture, which was radically against the codes, radically against convention, radically would have put them in an outcast position in their own hometown. And so famine leads to death, leads to ostracized uh, isolation from the culture in which they lived uh, and hatred from those all around them because now not only are the Israelites hating the Moabites in the marriage and the, and the multiracial nature of it, but the Moabites hate them back because of the multiracial nature of the marriages and the families. And so famine leads to, and despair leads to death, leads to ostracizing uh, and isolation leads to more death, the death of her sons after piled upon the death of her husband. To lose a, to lose a child? I mean, what's the way it's supposed to go? When you lose your husband, there's a sense where, okay, I hate that, but it, he, he's my husband. He's as old as I am. I, you know, I, he, I outlived him. I, we lived a long life, but then for a parent to lose a child is the most unnatural thing on earth. They're not supposed to die before me. That's not the way it's supposed. That's not how the story gets written. The story gets written is I give birth to you and we live a happy and long life and then I die and then you go on. You continue the legacy. But in this instance, her husband dies. Famine, isolation, hatred, conflict. Death of her children. Death of her children. And so faced with this, she says to, she says to Naomi, she says to, to Orpah and to, and to Ruth, best thing you can do is go back to Moab. I'm going to go back to Israel. Things are looking up there. Maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's something. But you go back to your people. I'll go back to my people. And you'll find you're young. You'll find new husbands. You'll find new hope. You'll find new lives. Don't worry about me. It's, it's more bitter for me than for you. I love, uh, you know, I, I love but it, it, it's tragic the way that she describes her situation. If I had hope that anything could happen. She says, if I had hope that anything could happen, if I had hope that, that, that somehow I could find a husband, was it, that's in verse, uh, verse 12, even if I thought there was still hope for me, which is suggestive that she had lost all sense of hope for herself. There's no, circumstances don't look good for me. As a matter of fact, earlier on in the passage, she says to herself, call me Mara. Call me Mara. Now that loses a sense. You don't quite know what she's getting at there. But the word, but the word, uh, the word Naomi actually literally means, the word Naomi actually means sweetness. The word Mara literally means bitterness. 
She says to her children, she says to her, to her daughters-in-law, call me Mara from now on because my life is bitter. There is no longer any sweetness. I've lost all hope that my life can be sweet. I've lost all sense that there's anything going to come of me. There is no hope for me, but there is hope for you if you go back to your families. My life is bitter now. My life is hopeless now. And I'm resolved to live in that until the Lord decides otherwise. And Orpah they both said the first time, so the first time, no, we're, not, we're staying together. Let's stay together. Let's make this work together. We're not leaving you. The first time they cried. And then she re-exerts her motherly authority, her mother, motherly grace to them and says, go back, please go back. Please don't worry about me. Please take care of yourselves. Save yourselves. And Orpah says, okay if you say so. Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth, on the other hand, says, there's no way I'm leaving you. There is no way. Please, what does she say? Do not urge me to leave you. Stop urging me. Stop. You've, you're pestering me about leaving you. You're, 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 you're going on about this, and this isn't the way it's going to be. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stay with you, I'm, I'm ne- and I'm never leaving you, and your people will be my people, and, and your God will be my God, and if you, where you die, I will die. I am, I am with you to the end, and if I'm not, may God be ever so severe with me. Um, the only other time we heard words like that in the Bible up to the book of Ruth? The only other time, do you recall? Do those words sound familiar to you? The only other time we heard words like that were from God himself to Abraham. Chapter 12. He says to Abraham, I will be your God and, I, and you will be my people. And I will be, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I will never leave you, and you will be for me, uh, you will be to the world a blessing to all nations, and I will give to you a, a people and a language and a nation that is not yet seen by you. I will do this for you. And he, and he, and he contractually obligated himself covenantally obligated himself to Abraham and said, I will not leave you. I will be to you a God. Be it ever so. And, and, he, and later on, after chapter 12, in, in chapter 15, he, he has Abraham do this little covenant ceremony, this little, this little ritual that existed in their day and age where, where uh, people would sign contracts that virtually said this very thing, that if I don't fulfill the promise of being to you and connecting to you and staying with you and providing for you and not leaving you. If I don't do that, may I be torn to pieces like the animals on the, on the ground through the ceremony. God was saying, if I don't fulfill this, be it ever so severe, if I'm not with you till death, if I'm not a God to you, If I don't make you my people, if I don't protect you, if I don't get you through, be it ever so severe. And so Ruth, here's here's the amazing grace in the midst of this unimagined bitterness. She's saying a Moabitess, 
a woman who was a woman who was in a culture far from God, an enemy to God's people, as it were, racially and socially outcast by that process. Here's a woman who has seen through the years she spent with her mother-in-law and in that household of the people of God, she's seen something that she's attracted to. And here's the, uh, here's the other oddity because she says, uh, Ruth or uh, Naomi says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against, has gone out against me. That's what Naomi says about her own life. And then the next thing she's, and then the next thing we see is Ruth saying, I want to have that God. That's the God I want. What? <laughs> Naomi's characterization of her experience with God is that he has gone out against me. He has made my life, he has turned my life from sweetness into bitterness, and that I'm going through a dark moment here, and that I'm not sure there's any hope for me. And, Na and Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to be with you, I'm never leaving you, and I'm going to make your people my people, and I'm going to be yours, and we're going to be connected, and your God is going to be my God. And at that moment, she is, con she is converting her heart to faith in the God of Israel. She's, she's casting her lot in with God, saying, I know, I, there's a sense where she's saying, I don't know everything about this God. I don't know everything about the people of God. I don't know everything about what, but what I do know, I want in. And what did she know? What did she know about this God? That all, she must have known that although he, although he afflicts, he also redeems. That there's something laced within his affliction, within the hardship, within the, within the difficulties, that there's something substantial in his restoration, in his grace that she wanted to be a part of. And although Naomi couldn't see it, Ruth could, looking from the outside in. But she wasn't even on the outside. Ruth had lost her own husband. She'd lost any prospect at that point of, of having children. She'd lost any prospect of being protected in a world that was radically male-oriented and radically, then if, if you lost a male protector, if you lost the income of a family, if you lost a sense of, of position in the, in the cultural in the cultural experience, you, had, you were destitute and you were at the mercy of society. And, Naomi, and, and Ruth says, I'm... I'm casting my lot in with you, and I'm going to stay with you. And, and in that regard, she's, she's making the same claim to Naomi that God made to Abraham in his grace, reminding us of that great covenant that he provided. So off they go, back to Israel, uh, back to where... Uh, Back to where the story started. Back to where Naomi and her husband first, first married, first started their family, first began the process. Back to the small town where they both grew up. Little town. Little town of Bethlehem. So they get to Bethlehem. Everybody's excited that they're in town. It causes a stir. Naomi's back. And who's this Moabitess? Of course, that would have caused a, some level of stir. But Naomi, and, and since, and since uh, 
And since uh, Naomi was, since Naomi was uh, of greater age and, and instability, Ruth says, I'll take care of us. What I'll do is I'll just go out gathering uh, food from the fields. I'll glean from the fields what's left over. Because what happened in those days is they would harvest the fields, but, but the edges, they, wouldn't, they, weren't, they weren't radically um, efficient. And so what Ruth said is, I'll take the leftovers and I'll take the stuff that they don't harvest, the sort of, you know, that the, the didn't gather in. They, they gather in the best crops and that goes to the landowner. And then the, uh, what's left over, I'll just, I'll just secretly wander through, gather what we need, just you and me, Naomi, and I'll bring it back home. And so she does. And then, oddly enough, randomly, she finds herself randomly, oddly, unexpectedly. She finds herself in the field of a man named Boaz who sees her. Now, she's a Moabite. The fact that she would have been a Moabite would have been very, very uh, um, noticeable, and everybody in town's already talking about it. It's a small town. It's not, like, <laughs> it's not like some big city, small little town of Bethlehem. And so... She's gleaning in his fields by happenstance, as it were. And he sees her. And he secretly says, without telling her, he says to his men, don't bother her. You let her glean. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, don't harvest to the edge of the field. Leave that edge of the field untouched. He sees her and takes a liking to her, and he takes a liking to her. I'm not sure all the reasons. The Scriptures don't give us completely some of that, but at least she, he sees in her a devotion to her mother-in-law. He sees in her something. She see, he sees in her spunk. There's that old, old TV program years and years ago. Only the, only the few of you would remember this. Uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show about a woman, single woman, who was trying to make ends meet, make her, make her way in New York City through, a, through becoming a bit part of a TV station or a newspaper station. I forget what it was. It was TV. And she goes into the, she goes into the, the manager's office, the head, the head editor's office, um, played by Ed Asner. And Mary Tyler Moore was, Mary Tyler Moore played the, character, the lead character in She's in there, spunk, you know, spunky, and she's just sort of laying, laying out her case and why she should get hired. And she's very, very bubbly and very excited and very sort of undaunted by his dark demeanor. And, she sa and he, says, he says in a sort of gleeful tone, you've got spunk, don't you? And she says, well, yeah, I like to think I have spunk. He says, I hate spunk. Yeah. Ruth has chutzpah, to use a Jewish expression. She's willing to put herself on the line for the sake of her mother-in-law, willing to put herself at risk, knowing that she's a foreigner, knowing that she's hated, knowing that there's racial tension, knowing that she, should, she has no business gleaning in the fields of someone she doesn't know. And she's taking this on herself, taking this risk into her own experience in order to care for her mother-in-law because she's, she's cast her lot in with a woman whose life is a dead end. In the culture in which they lived, in the society in which they lived, to, to be an elderly widow is a dead-end life. There is no benefit to it. And Ruth, the young woman, beautiful, 
at the beginning of her trail, is saying to her older mother-in-law, I'm going to, your life is a dead end, but I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you selflessly. I'm going to give myself to you. And Boaz saw that spunk. He saw that devotion. He saw that sacrifice that she was making, that she would attach her new life, her bright hope, her, her exuberant life to the life of a woman who in all, for all intents and purposes was dead. And he saw that and apart from whatever physical beauty existed, her inner character, her, the beauty of herself, the beauty of her sacrifice and devotion, Boaz saw and says, don't you touch her. As a matter of fact, leave the field open so she can glean from the good crops. And as much as he, as much as he took a liking to her, she took a liking to him. And you'd think... Her boldness. You, you'd think that her, her courage, her assertiveness was enough in and of itself up to now, but her assertiveness goes even further because he takes a liking to her, she takes a liking to him, and now that she sees him you know, kind of creating a barrier, being a protector to her and, and giving her crops uh, to harvest in their lives and to care for her, she takes it one step and, he sa and says, to her, says to herself, well, if this is how he feels about me, let me, see how he really, let me see how he really feels. And so overnight, he's sleeping on the threshing floor, sleeping in the harvest room, as it were. And she goes in secretly at night and kneels at his feet, sleeps there all night long, and when he wakes up, she says, will you marry me? Not literally. There's a little cultural stuff going on in the story as you read it in, cha in chapter 2 and 3. But basically, she's proposing marriage. Unheard of. It's unheard of today, isn't it? To some extent, I mean, it's less like it's less less the less maybe the, uh, the 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 sort of shocking thing today that wives would that women would propose uh, would propose marriage to a man. Uh, a lot of times today, it's more it's a mutual experience, a mutual sort of thing. But um, certainly in my generation, men asked the wife, men proposed marriage. Again, coming out of the same whole thing. But in this day and age, it certainly would have been unheard of that Ruth would have been. The Poser of marriage. She's so assertive. She's so uppity. She's so outside of herself. Where in the heck does she get off suggesting such a thing? Not for herself, but for her mother-in-law. Because she knew if she could marry Boaz, if that relationship, and she's not wasting any time, he caught, I caught his eye. He caught my eye. Let's get this thing going because my mother-in-law has nothing. My mother-in-law needs salvation. We need to be redeemed. We need to be restored. We need some hope and protection in this world. And she says, will you make this happen? And he says, I would love to. Except there's somebody else that's in between us. Last week, you recall that we talked about in, in the story of Tamar, this custom of an Israelite called uh, kinsman redeemer or Levitical marriage, Levite marriage. Uh, uh, 
it's a kinsman redeemer. It's a, it's a kinsman. It's a, it's a next of kin. The next of kin would have married, the, the next of kin would have married uh, uh, the widow of a, of a dead patriarch in order to allow the land, allow the possessions to be, to be bought and sold and allow the name to progress and, to, and, to, and the lineage to be developed and that marriage would result. And, and so in this instance, Boaz says, I would love to marry you, but I'm not next in line. There's somebody in between us. There's another kinsman redeemer. There's someone else who has legal right to the, to the property, to the name, to the advance. Let's ask him first. And he says, you know, Boaz goes and says, would you, to the kinsman redeemer, to the next in line, he says, will you marry, or will you uh, buy the field and continue the lineage? He says, yeah, I'd love to buy the field. He says, well, if you buy the field, you've got to marry the woman. He says, well, I don't want to marry the woman. I'll buy the field. Boaz says, well, you can't have the field without the woman. And a smile curls up on Boaz's face, I imagine. Because he didn't want, he didn't want the stigma. He didn't want the hatred. He didn't want the conflict. He didn't want the complication. He wanted the money, the kinsman in line. He wanted the money from the field. He wanted the, the wealth of the transaction. He didn't want the complication, the conflict, the unease, the affliction, the hardship of a Moabitess woman and an old mother-in-law. Because that's a dead-end story. And as, the, and as the legal process has occurred, Boaz says, I'm happy to have the whole thing because I love this woman and I want to redeem her. I want to make her life whole because she makes my life whole. I want to make my mother-in-law's life whole. I want to make this right. And so he does make it right. And the end of the story we see in chapter 4, the church bells ring, the rice gets thrown, the doves get released. All this isn't in the scriptures. I'm just adding that. And they live happily ever after. The fairy tale comes true. Boaz marries Ruth. And Naomi, in the final scene, we see them, you know, marriage coming together. And in the background of the scene, the camera fades away, fades away from and focuses in on Naomi in the background and she's smiling. She's smiling and then time moves forward and she's holding the baby and all of her friends are saying, Naomi, who could have thought? Who could have thought you'd have a child? Who could have thought that you would have, that anything would have resulted from you? Who would have thought that your story had any good ending? Who would have thought you even thought your life was bitter? You had even lost hope. You had even wanted to call yourself bitterness, but now what do you want to call yourself? Now what is your name? Naomi. Naomi as a child. And not just a, not just a child, but, Naomi, but, but the book of Ruth includes the end of the story. Obed. Boaz and Ruth have Obed. And Obed, Obed's son, Ruth's grandson, is Jesse. 
Joseph's great-grandson, King David. God redeems these broken stories. God's using these broken stories to bring about a redemption you cannot even imagine or understand. Utilizing the assertiveness of women who step outside of their cultural norms, using the brokenness of a woman who doesn't even believe that God is for her anymore, doesn't even believe there's any hope for her anymore, and says, I can make something of all of that that you think I can't make anything from. And here's the thing. Everything that Ruth thought she, everything Ruth was giving up in order to connect herself with, with Naomi, everything that Ruth uh, was giving up, she, everything she had no reason to believe she would ever get, protection, a husband, a child, all of those things, and many other things, but at least uh, protection, a husband, and a child, all of those tangible, earthly things that she could have put her hope in. I'm never going to get married again. I'm never going to have children. I'm never going to be able to find any sort of status or, or protection. I'm always going to live uneasy and, and, at the, and at the mercy of culture. All of those things that she may have thought, all of those things that you may be thinking, what are the things that you think you'll never get in this world? What are the things that you think in this world, that the, what are the things that you think have lost their sweetness and you'll never be able to have? What do you believe that God is now against you in? Where is your bitterness? What is the, what is the unforeseen bitterness in your world? And God gives to Ruth, all of those tangible things, protection through her Redeemer, a husband in Boaz, a child in Obed, and not just a child, but a legacy, and a legacy that she is, she is the queen mother of King David. And King David is the crown king of that future king because David's lineage falls all the way down, Matthew says. David's lineage goes all the way down that Ruth ends up being the mother of Jesus too, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who, has, who, who is brought about to redeem all of the sad stories, who is brought into this world to make our lives whole, to give us an abundant experience, and not just in the heavenly realms, but in the here and now. I don't know what, what admixture of that comes then and what comes now. We're not trying to measure that out. But, but the pattern of Scripture is to suggest that he does redeem our human stories. He does give us the blessings in, pressed down, shaken together, spilling over in that current life experience. And I don't know what that means. And sometimes affliction means benefit to others while maybe not so much benefit for you, but others' affliction might mean the benefit for you. And certainly Christ's affliction means the benefit for everyone, forgiveness and favor that we have from the Father, which allows us to live in confidence, to live, to live with a sense of poise in the midst of strain. Naomi, or I should say Ruth, was willing to have her life be a life that led all the way to death so that Naomi could have life. And that indeed was the experience of the Redeemer, of Christ. 
Christ was willing to attach himself to us. Dead end. And give back to us hope, brightness, redemption. Story. Story about Boaz from Bethlehem, which leads to the story of Jesus from Bethlehem. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for reminding us that our lives are not hopeless because you are our Redeemer. And that, Father, I pray that you, would, that you would give us a sense, give us the faith we do not have to see the sweetness amidst what seems like bitterness. Help us to wait. Help us to linger. Help us to know that you, help us to not try to guess what you're doing in our lives, but simply wait and walk faithfully towards that which you are doing in our lives. against all odds, unexpected, unimagined rescue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.